0: For the chief musician, a psalm of David. Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my laying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. But the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book they all were written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God! Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men, for they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That last verse there is something we can all say to ourselves quite often. Search me out, Lord. You know me already. Search me out and let me know as well. Okay, we're going to be in Leviticus 17 today. We're going to do the whole chapter, and this is going to happen a couple times in a row, where I'm just going to do the whole chapter in a sermon. Um, A couple of them will have very little Christ in them. They're more laws for Israel. There'll be a couple pictures of Christ, but uh, chapter 17 has some really marvelous pictures of Christ in his work. However, I will say this before I read these verses, that um, I I say this from time to time. When I do a sermon, you have a difficulty scale. You know, one would be your life application sermon where everybody gets it, and then you have 10, which would be nobody's going to get this ever, but I have to say it. This one will probably be about a seven or a seven and a half. It's rather complicated, but verse 11 is what I want you to most focus on. So when we get down there and I analyze it, then you can wake up and after that you can do whatever you want to do. But um, it it, it is important verse because it's mostly translated wrong by um, different translations. As a matter of fact, I don't know if there's any that will really translate it properly, but it's telling us something. Important, and then it will lead us to an understanding of Christ and his work. But it is a little complicated. Please don't feel bad if you go home and you say, I don't know what he was talking about and that or that or that. Go back and watch it again. Read it online, and you will get it. But it's just one of those things that you can't assimilate everything, probably, in one sitting, unless you're already pretty well grounded in Scripture. So um, here we go. This is Leviticus 17, 1 through 16. Okay? Uh, It's entitled, The Sanctity of Blood. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron, to his sons, and to all the children of Israel, and say to them, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded, saying, Whatever man of the house of Israel who kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp, or who kills it outside the camp, then does not bring it to the door of the tabernacle of meeting to offer an offering to the Lord before the tabernacle of the Lord, the guilt of bloodshed shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood, and that man shall be cut off from among his people to the end that the children of Israel may bring their sacrifices, which they offer in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting to the priest and offer them as peace offerings to the Lord. And the priest shall sprinkle the blood on the altar of the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting and burn the fat for a sweet aroma to the Lord. They shall no more offer their sacrifices to demons after whom they have played the harlot. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. Also you shall say to them, whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you, who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the door of the tabernacle of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from among his people. And whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people." For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Therefore, I said to the children of Israel, No one among you shall eat blood, nor shall any stranger who dwells among you eat blood. Whatever man of the children of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you who hunts and catches any animal or bird that may be eaten, he shall pour out its blood and cover it with dust, for it is the life of all flesh. Its blood sustains its life. Therefore I said to the children of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any flesh, for the life of all flesh is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off, and every person who eats what died naturally or what was torn by beasts, whether it is a native of your own country or a stranger, he shall both wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Then he shall be clean. But if he does not wash them or bathe his body, Then he shall bear his guilt. Are you seeing Christ all over those verses? Because he's all over those verses. All right. Some years ago, Louis Giglio, some of you probably heard of him. He did a now very famous sermon on the substance known as laminine. The technical definition of laminine is that it is the most abundant glycoprotein molecule found in basement membrane. It has multiple functions in eukaryotic tissues. It serves to attach epithelial cells to basement membrane, aids development and migration of specific cell types in growth and maturation, and has been implicated in tumor metastasis and some types of infection. That's from PubMed. In essence, it could be equated to a glue for holding cells to a foundation of connective tissue in the body of animal life, including humans. This glue then ensures proper functioning of the cells and it has a shape amazingly similar to the Christian cross. That was all that Louis needed to whip together a wonderfully inspiring sermon that was based on this substance. His conclusion is that it confirms Colossians 1 verse 17 that speaks of Jesus and says, And he is before all things, and in him all things Consist. The word consist there is translated by the NIV as hold together. It's an uplifting sermon, and one will go away from it feeling much better about life because it is, after all, a life application sermon. There's nothing wrong with this for the most part, but we need to remember that the truth of the Bible is not based on the shape or lack of shape of anything in the human body nor is it dependent on anything else which is unknown to be true. In other words, until Louis Giglio did the sermon, the truth of the Bible was never in question because of there being laminine or there being no such thing as laminine. One could say that the Bible is confirmed as true because of a substance which we will call Trinitarium. It's discovered inside of atoms and it's the basis for all-generated power, and which is shaped like the Trinity model used by seminaries to explain the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This then would logically and completely confirm Romans one twenty, which speaks of God's eternal power and Godhead, wouldn't it? Well, as no such thing is yet discovered, then that would imply that Romans one is isn't yet true, and it won't be true until we find Trinitarium. So I hope we find it really soon. Our text verse comes from Colossians chapter 1. It's verses 19 and 20. For it pleased the Father that in him, meaning Christ Jesus, all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. I'm not into life application sermons. And other than the intro to sermons, I don't like to go very far from the word unless it is to demean my own physical appearance or to make note of how exceptionally lovely my wife and this congregation are. The Bible doesn't need me to make up stuff in order to be sound, reasonable, and self-confirming. We've been through so many internal confirmations of scripture in the past that really and honestly only a fool would say this book has no merit at all. As a text verse, I shied away from Louis Colossians 1.17, and I went right to the heart of the matter. The truth of the cross is not found in something that looks like a cross, be it laminine or an Egyptian ankh or any other random or purposeful fabrication of something. Rather, the truth of the cross is found in what it symbolizes, reconciliation between God and man one can logically determine what God's divine attributes are. He can then logically determine that there is no peace with God because in order to make nice with one attribute, he would have to violate another one of his attributes. In other words, there is a tension which exists between God and man which cannot be resolved apart from what God has done in Jesus Christ. This is logically so. Everything about God is logical and it is orderly and it results in inescapable truce. The only resolution to the tension that exists is that it cannot be resolved by us and yet it can be resolved. God tells us how and then he shows us what that resolution actually looks like. Laminine bears an uncanny resemblance to it but my hope in what God has done is not based on something as dubious as that. My hope and what should be your hope too is based on the cross of Jesus Christ and the blood that was shed there. There is sanctity in the blood. There is power in the blood. And the blood itself makes atonement through the soul that is in it. What that means will be explained to you in our verses today, especially verse 11. They are verses which, as always, point us to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It's all to be found in his superior word, And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have a couple of thoughts for you today. The first is blood at the altar of the Lord. It's verses 1 through 7. Verse 1, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, chapter 17 begins the second major section of the book of Leviticus. The first major section went from chapter 1 to chapter 16. As we saw, it covered mostly, and I mean a lot of it, laws for sacrifice and for purification, all of which culminated and were highlighted by the laws for the Day of Atonement ritual, which was found in chapter 16. This second major section will go from chapter 17 to the end of the book in chapter 27. For the most part, these chapters will look to the process of sanctification in the lives of the people. The regulations to be laid down will govern common, everyday life. They are intended to instill in the people holiness as they live in the Lord's presence. This section will be highlighted in the instructions for the sabbatical years and the year of Jubilee. These 11 final chapters, which form this major section, are subdivided, starting with chapters 17 through 20, which deal in matters concerning the general holiness of the people. In these chapters, a great distinction between Israel and the heathen people of Canaan is made. In essence, they do these evil things, but you are to conduct yourself in holiness. Chapters 21 and 22 deal with holiness in relation to the priests and their offerings. Chapters 23 through 25 mostly cover the feasts of the Lord and the years of Sabbath and Jubilee, but which also cover a few other important points. Chapter 26, which I mentioned in the Prophecy Update, bears words spoken in the first person to the people of Israel by the Lord. Those words define the anticipated blessings and curses which will come to pass based on their conduct as his chosen people. And finally, chapter 27 will cover vows which are made by the people. It is Moses who is first addressed in this opening section. As the designated lawgiver, the Lord speaks directly to him but with words which then follow on to the entire congregation, as is noted in the next words. Verse 2, speak to Aaron, words for the mediator of the covenant, for the high priest who will oversee the covenant, and for the one who is to render judgments in accord with that office of overseer. Verse 2 continues, to his sons, words for the priests who will perform the regular duties of the priesthood including whatever son of Aaron who will eventually assume the position as high priest. Verse two continues and to all the children of Israel. This is the first time that this specific phrase is made. What Moses has commanded includes words for the entire congregation as well. In designating these three categories in one sentence, the requirements are for all alike. In essence, the priestly class, including the high priest himself are placed on the same level as any other person in the congregation. The words are binding on all without distinction. Though the priests may administer the law for the people, they are equally bound to every precept of the law. Verse 2 continues, And say to them, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded, saying, The words are from the mouth of the Lord, having passed through Moses, the lawgiver, and which are now to be presented to the entire congregation without distinction. As the instructions for the Day of Atonement were just given, these words must be taken in relation to that. Laws are forthcoming, which will actually necessitate that most solemn annual occurrence to be conducted. The stern hand of the law will be made known. But the provision of grace for ignorant violations of the law has already been revealed in that chapter 16 atonement section. Verse 3, whatever man of the house of Israel who kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or who kills it outside the camp, the meaning of the words of the thought now being presented are widely debated for now and concerning just verse 3. Instructions are being given concerning the slaughtering of an ox, lamb, or goat, either inside or outside of the camp. The word used for kills here is shachat, meaning to slaughter, but it is not necessarily a sacrifice. It is simply the killing of an animal. The word for camp means just that. In this case, it is the camp of the people currently traveling on their way to the land of Canaan. It is used when the people are in the land of Canaan when designating a camp of people who are prepared for battle, but it is not a word used to speak of the entire nation of Israel in the land of Canaan. Understanding these words will help clear up scholarly confusion. Verse 4, and does not bring it to the door of the tabernacle of meeting to offer an offering to the Lord before the tabernacle of the Lord. While Israel is in the camp which surrounds the tabernacle, and until the time they would come into the land of Canaan and begin to live in cities, it was required that these sacrificial-type animals were to be slaughtered as an offering to the Lord. Some scholars say that this means that when they are slaughtered as sacrifices, this was the case. But if they were simply killed for food, this was not the case. Thus, it would be ensuring that sacrifices were only made to the Lord and only at his temple. This is not correct. The law, rather, is for any of these animals, regardless of whether it is a sacrifice or merely for food. It was to first be offered to the Lord as an offering to him. This is certain because of the word used, which simply means to slaughter. However, and despite this, the implication is that the animal, regardless if it was only meant to be eaten, was considered as a sacrifice by the people. Now, why would that be? As they were not in a habitable land, any slaughter of such an animal would be considered a rarity. They were also fed with manna, and there was no actual need to slaughter such an animal. And so any such slaughtering would be considered as a sacrifice by the one slaughtering it. Therefore, it had to be first offered to the Lord. Verse 4 continues, The guilt of bloodshed shall be imputed to that man. Because of the implied use of such an animal as a sacrifice, a person would be guilty of bloodshed if it was not presented first to the Lord. This is actually seen when speaking of the people in Isaiah's time, where first the term shachat, or slaughter, is used, and then the term zabach, or sacrifice, is then used. He says in Isaiah 66, verse 3, He who kills a bull is as if he slays a man. He's making a comparison about somebody doing such a thing. He who sacrifices a lamb as if he breaks a dog's neck. Verse four continues. He has shed blood and that man shall be cut off from among his people. If anyone so slaughtered an animal without first offering it to the Lord, then the guilt of bloodshed was upon him and he was to be cut off. In this case, cut off means death. If a person was guilty of bloodshed, implying the blood of a man, the penalty was death. But the question is, why would slaughtering an animal in this way bring on blood guilt? The answer is that an animal sacrifice is typical of the one final sacrifice of Christ. To kill an animal as a sacrifice but not present it to the Lord would be a denial that only Christ's blood is sufficient to save. The Israelites were just coming out of the land of Egypt, where they had participated in the religious worship of the Egyptians. They were now to have those false systems of worship purged from their lives and to only make offerings to the Lord. In failing to do so, they would be denying the Lord who redeemed them, and also that their redemption is only fully realized in the coming of Jesus Christ. In the section of Leviticus, which concerned dietary laws, the question of what could be eaten was defined. Here in this chapter, the question of how something could be eaten is now defined. This is the first of such introductions, pointing directly to the coming person and work of Jesus Christ. Verse 5, to the end that the children of Israel may bring their sacrifices which they offer in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting to the priest and offer them as peace offerings to the Lord. This verse explains the difficulties of verse 4. The word zabach or sacrifices now used. In fact, it is used four times in this verse. It first says that they may bring their sacrifices which they sacrifice. Then at the end, it repeats itself saying, and sacrifice sacrifices. Any slaughtering of such an animal, whether it was actually intended as a sacrifice or not, was deemed as such by the Lord. He has provided manna and he will provide meat for the people as well. And so their needs are met. Anything beyond that is to be deemed by the Lord as a sacrifice, regardless of its end use in the minds of the people. Therefore, they are now to be fully considered as sacrifices requiring priestly rites. In this verse there is a contrast between the open field and the door of the tabernacle of meeting. The words in Hebrew are Pene Ha sadeh and Patach Ohel Moed. One is literally the face of the field. The other is the door of the tent of meeting. The reason for this contrast will be explained in verse 7. In the case of these sacrifices, they were to be brought to the tent door to the priest and offered as peace or fellowship offerings to the Lord. If you remember, it is an offering where there is a mutual sharing between the Lord and his people, just as in our Lord's Supper today. Thus, this peace offering is, in type and in picture, an anticipatory look ahead to what we now look back on. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. These peace offerings were an anticipatory commemoration of the body and the blood of Christ. They were proclaiming the Lord's death until he came. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Verse 6, And the priest shall sprinkle the blood on the altar of the Lord, at the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and burn the fat for a sweet aroma to the Lord. This is describing the part of the peace offering which is for the Lord. Without giving all of the types and pictures of Christ, which were minutely described in chapter 3, it is enough to say that the blood is typical of Christ's blood, and the fat of which there are specific parts mandated solely to the Lord— Picture the most intimate aspects of Christ. They are the essence of who he is, and these were returned to the Lord. The word sprinkle for what is done with the blood here is incorrect. It was cast or splashed upon the altar, not sprinkled. It is to signify a complete surrender of Christ's will to the Lord. Along with the casting of the blood, the fat... The essence of Christ the man was to be burned to the Lord as a fragrant offering, a sweet aroma to the Lord. It is Christ upon the altar, as Paul notes in Ephesians chapter 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ has also loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling aroma. Further, This is now the third time that the petach, or door, of the Tent of Meeting is mentioned in only three verses. But this time it is used in conjunction with Mizbach Yehovah, or Altar of Yehovah. It is the altar of sacrifice which is set before the door. The sacrifice at the altar is what symbolically allows access through the door. Here we have three specific pictures of Christ. He is the altar of the Lord, he is the sacrifice, and he is the door. Along with these are many, many other references. The blood, the splashing of the blood, the tent of meeting, the fat, and on and on. Each and every one of them is directing us to Christ Jesus. Verse 7, they shall no more offer their sacrifices to demons after whom they have played the harlot. The public altar of Jehovah, of verse six, is named as a direct contrast to the many private altars which were used by the people when they offered to the serim or goats, signifying demons. The word sayir or goat literally means hairy goat. It's the same animal which was used in chapter sixteen and presented for the Lord for selection by lot, one for Jehovah and one for Azazel. What this is telling us is that Israel had been sacrificing to demons in the open fields. This was to the Lord a form of harlotry. Just as a person leaves their spouse and goes into a harlot for intimacy, thus denying the spouse of their marital rights, so Israel had gone to these demons for intimate worship, denying the Lord his rights as their betrothed husband. The word harlot here, however, certainly carries a double force to it. When sacrifices were made to demons, it also carried with it the idea of pagan revelry and licentiousness. This was seen in the incident of the golden calf. The open spaces are contrasted to the altar of the Lord. Private sacrifice to the demons is contrasted to public sacrifice to the Lord. Intimate, perverse conduct is contrasted to intimate holiness and fellowship. What had been was no longer to be allowed. There can be no fellowship between the Lord and demons. Paul explains this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What am I saying then? That an altar is anything, or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather, the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Verse 7 going on. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. The meaning of these words must be considered in context. In Deuteronomy 12, the mandate that these particular animals to be brought to the sanctuary is terminated. There it says the following. This is still in the wilderness, but it says this in Deuteronomy 12. When the Lord your God enlarges your border as he has promised you, and you say, let me eat meat, because you long to eat meat, you may eat as much as your heart desires. If the place where the Lord your God chooses to put his name is too far from you, then you may slaughter from your herd and from your flock which the Lord has given you, just as I have commanded you, and you may eat within your gates as much as your heart desires. These are the same animals which are now forbidden in Leviticus to be slaughtered, except in the presence of the Lord. And so the words statute forever are not speaking of the slaughtering of the animals, but of the offering of the animals to the hairy ones or demons. Instead, they were to always be offered to the Lord alone. Before going on, three main points must be raised concerning what has been seen first is that these verses are given as pictures of Christ's coming ministry. This has been clearly presented. Secondly, we are to see the failure of the people under the law to meet these very requirements. Throughout the rest of the Old Testament, it is shown that the people failed by offering to demons. It is recorded specifically in Jeremiah 13, Ezekiel chapter 20, and in Hosea 9 and 12, among other places. But, more directly, it is recorded in Amos 5, verse 25, that the people even continued to offer to these demons in the time of the wilderness wanderings. This is repeated by Stephan in Acts chapter 7. It shows you the absolute failure of Israel as a people. This continued failure of the people, from their very inception of being called under the law of Moses, is noted to show them their need for grace. Grace. For grace, thus the Day of Atonement, and thus Christ, whom that prefigures. It was intended to then show them and us that the law is incapable of saving anyone. And it was intended to show us our desperate need for something else. Again, to lead us to Christ. And thirdly, it is then to show us that only Christ can bring us to God. The Petach Ohel Moed, or door of the Tent of Meeting, is the only access which is given for us to meet with the Lord. As Christ is that door, then we must go through him and none other in order to be right with God. I don't care what any other church, I don't care what any other politician, I don't care what any person on this planet says about all paths leading to God. It is not true. The Lord has spoken, he is not confused, and there is one path and one path alone to be reconciled to him, and that is through his son his shed blood. He is the door. He is the sweet offering. He is our all in all. He is everything. Do not believe anybody that ever tells you that anybody apart from Jesus Christ will be in heaven because you are sorely mistaken and highly deceived. The soul of the flesh is in the blood and it is this then that makes atonement for you. Only through the precious crimson flood can you be cleansed, spotless and new. There at the altar, the blood is cast, and it is this sacrifice which will open the door. Through it is new life, gone is the past. Through that death comes life evermore. Be sure and know that there is but this one way. No other avenue can reconcile you to me. But in coming through my son, you start a new day, one which will continue unabated for all eternity our second thought today is the soul of the flesh is in the blood it's verses 8 through 16 already seen what 30 pictures of Christ did you expect that in the first half of this chapter I'm telling you it is an amazing book if you just look for the Lord he's right there verse 8 also you shall say to them whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice these words now go to any specific burnt offering or sacrifice the previous verses looked to any slaughter of an animal in general, which was to be taken by the Lord as an intended offering of fellowship with him instead of a demon. Now any Israelite man or even a foreigner was instructed concerning any burnt offering or sacrifice they might make. A new limitation is placed on them, verse 9, and does not bring it to the door of the tabernacle of meeting to offer to the Lord that man shall be cut off from among his people. When such an offering is made, but it has not been brought to be presented to the Lord at the door of the tent of meeting, it is to be considered an offense worthy of excommunication. Rather than death, excommunication is probably intended here. Three times in this chapter it says a man's offense is worthy of being cut off from his people. However, only here is the word people plural in the Hebrew. Thus, rather than being cut off from the body of people, Israel, it seems to imply the body of people which are his father's kin. Only the Lord's appointed place of worship was acceptable for burnt offerings or sacrifices, and only the Lord's designated priest was acceptable to handle such. To fail in this would be a grievous offense worthy of excommunication. The reason for this prohibition is that no person was any longer allowed to mediate for himself or his family. You know the book of Job? He was the mediator. Abraham fulfilled that role. In past times, this was the head of the household's responsibility. No longer would it be so in Israel. This then looks forward to Christ as the sole mediator between God and man. There is no end around to be made where we can go directly to God apart from Jesus Christ. Only through him as our high priest and only through a sacrifice or offering that is in anticipation of his coming could Israel find access to God and also be able to remain in fellowship with his own people. Verse 10, and whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. The eating of blood was forbidden all the way back in Genesis chapter 9. In fact, it is the very first prohibition given to man after the flood of Noah. All animal life was given to man to eat, but no flesh with the blood in it could be eaten. Thus, the eating of blood here includes the eating of flesh, which has not been bled out first. This applied to the Israelite as well as to the stranger who dwelt among his people. This was necessary in the camp of Israel during the wilderness wanderings. But later, when they were about to enter the land of Canaan, this rule was relaxed in Deuteronomy chapter 14. Here's what it says there. You shall not eat anything that dies of itself. You may give it to the alien who is within your gates, that he may eat it, or you may sell it to a foreigner, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. For the Lord to set his face against someone means, literally, to pour out his anger on him. In this, there were two ways that this could happen. If it was known by others that he had done this, he would receive the just punishment from the leaders. But if done in secret, the Lord himself would pursue and render judgment on him. Verse 11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. In this verse, one word is translated by the New King James Version as both life and soul. This somewhat confuses the sense of what is being said here. The Hebrew reads, for the soul, the flesh in the blood, it. The blood is actually the seed of life within the flesh of the body. A person can lose the use of their legs, but the legs are still alive, right? You got Johnny Erickson Tata. Her legs don't work, but her legs are still alive, right? But if the blood is cut off from them, they die and they corrupt. Understanding this about the blood gives us the first reason for the prohibition. The nature of the blood being the soul of the flesh is the first reason for the command. And secondly, the Lord says, it is because I have given it to you to make atonement for your soul. Blood is consecrated by the Lord for sacrificial worship. And then, with that understanding, we come to the final clause. Many translations say, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. But what the Hebrew is saying takes us back to the use of soul in the first clause. Because the blood is the soul of the flesh, it is what provides atonement. Therefore, rather than saying it makes atonement for the soul, meaning the one being atoned for, it says the blood itself makes atonement for. Through the soul that is in it, it is speaking of the soul of the blood in the sacrifice and what it does in relation to the atonement process. Although seemingly nitpicky, it means that something must die giving up its soul in order for atonement to be made. If merely blood itself could provide atonement, one could bleed out a cord of blood Keep living and atone for sin. But it is the soul of the flesh itself, which is the blood, and which animates the flesh that provides atonement. The validation that death has occurred through the shed blood provides atonement. It is why Paul says this about Christ in the book of Romans. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection knowing this that our old man was crucified with him that the body of sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves of sin here it is for he who has died has been freed from sin as christ died for our sin then we who are in christ have died with him our sins are once and forever atoned for You talk about the doctrine of eternal salvation. People love to say, once saved, always saved. That's a heresy. It's right here. We see it again and again and again in the Old Testament, pointing to the fact that Christ died for everybody one time. And if you are in Christ, it is done. Remember that song we listened to before we started today and the guy that wrote that song and he walked away from the faith later in life, prone to wander, Lord, I know it. He's there with the Lord right now. He is atoned for. The only thing that happens to him because he walked away from the Lord is a loss of rewards. You let your faith slip and you're going to be judged for that. But you are in my presence forever because you demonstrated faith in what I did for you. All right. All of this, all of this is about Jesus Christ. As Christ died for our sin, then we who are in Christ have died with him. Our sins are once and forever atoned for. Therefore, the prohibition against eating meat with blood in it no longer stands. It was a type and picture of Christ alone until he had finished the work of the law. If you are one to eat bloody steaks, you are free to do so. It doesn't personally interest me. My dad will tell you and my wife will tell you. Mine are like chewy leather, but should my preferences ever change, so be it. The prohibition which is recorded in the book of Acts concerning blood was for a set purpose and not repeated in the prescriptive letters of the epistles. It is those letters, especially of Paul, from which we derive our church age doctrine. Thus, this prohibition is no longer in force. It is fulfilled in Christ. Verse 12, therefore, I said to the children of Israel, no one among you shall eat blood, nor shall any stranger who dwells among you eat blood. The prohibition of eating blood was given because it is the vehicle of life. For this reason, the Lord reserved all blood to himself. To eat the blood was to assimilate into oneself something which belonged to him alone. It was therefore idolatrous to use it in any other way than designated by him. If it was not used in the rites of the tabernacle, it was to be poured out and it was to be covered with earth. Verse 13, and that's making a picture, of what you're going to see in just a second. Whatever man of the children of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you, who hunts and catches any animal or bird that may be eaten, he shall pour out its blood and cover it with dust. Up to this point, only the animals of sacrifices have been discussed. There was a positive command of offering the blood to the Lord, but there was also the negative of not eating the animal's blood. This negative command now continues to extend, coming to agreement with the prohibition given to Noah so long ago. Any creatures which were clean and used for food by the Israelites were to have the blood drained out first, and then that blood was to be covered with dust. This prohibition also extended, as before, to the strangers who dwelt among Israel. If any such stranger didn't follow this practice— It would then quickly spread to the people of Israel, causing them to fall into sin by their failure to act in accord with the law. There is a sense of finality in the words here. The first time that afar or dust was used in the Bible was in Genesis. Here's what it says in Genesis 2, verse 7. And the Lord God formed the man... Of the dust of the ground, the afar. Immediately after that, in the same verse, it then says, "...and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being." From the dust, man was made. But he wasn't yet alive. Only in the breathing of the Lord into the nostrils of the man did he become a nefesh chaya, or soul living. Therefore, when eating an animal, the life was to be poured out and covered with the dust." In man or animal, when the life is poured out, the dust reclaims ownership over what is left. This is true with but one exception. It is Jesus, the Lord God who breathed into the man. And yet he then descended from the man he breathed life into. In the shedding of his blood upon the ground from which his earthly body came, he gave up his soul. And yet the ground found no victory over him. The life returned, the soul reanimated, and by the power of the Lord God, he walked out of that tomb. Atonement was made with the pouring out of his soul, and yet he lives. Only in him is true and eternal life. This is why he stated the following in John chapter 6. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood... You have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. Verse 14, for it is the life of all flesh. Its blood sustains its life. Therefore, I said to all the children of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any flesh for the life of all flesh is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. Again, as before, the word soul is used three times in this verse, not the word life. It says, for the soul of all flesh is its blood with its soul, meaning its blood and soul together. Therefore, I said to the children of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any flesh for the soul of all flesh is its blood. The animals here in discussion are not sacrificial animals, and yet the prohibition still stands. It shows that it is the soul of the animal, meaning the blood, where the focus is directed. If one were to eat the soul of the animal, it would be for the purpose of life. But Colossians 1 tells us that only Christ is the true source and sustainer of life. Therefore, blood was forbidden. The physical aspect of what is being presented here is showing us spiritual truths concerning Christ. Verse 15, and every person who eats what died naturally or what was torn by beasts, whether he is a native of your own country or a stranger, he shall both wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening, then he shall be clean. No reason for this allowance is given, but it clearly shows that the prohibitions here are spiritual in nature, and this for several reasons. An animal which died by itself, or one which was killed by other beasts, did not have the blood drained out of it. The animal is dead because its lifeblood had stopped flowing. To eat this animal cannot be compared to eating blood itself, because the soul had departed. And yet, it is still true that the blood remained in the animal. Such meat was forbidden to be eaten in Leviticus 7 verse 24. But if it were out of necessity, or an accident, or trickery by another, or whatever other reason, the person was merely considered unclean. As there was no intent here, but because he still ate something forbidden, it shows the spiritual nature of the mandate. And then secondly comes the means of purification from defilement. The first is washing the clothes, and the second is bathing. Right? Both of these are external acts. They have absolutely nothing to do with what went into the man, and yet they're required in order to be considered purified. And finally, the last part of the purification was to wait until sundown, at which time he would be clean again. If he ate his meal at 6.55 p.m. and the day started at 6 p.m., then he would be defiled for 23 hours and 5 minutes. If he ate and then washed at 5.45 p.m., he would only be defiled for 15 minutes. Clearly, this shows us that defilement here is spiritual and not actual. Further, they pertain to an Israelite and stranger alike. In order to be considered clean, the command stands for both. As we've already seen, the washing of the garments points to trampling out sin in one's life. The bathing points to purification of one's life by Christ. And the evening time points to the time that Christ died and then was placed in the tomb. With his death and burial, all defilement of man was truly washed away. This ceremonial period of defilement simply looked forward to the cleansing from all defilement provided by the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 16 finishes our verses today. But if he does not wash them or bathe his body, then he shall bear his guilt. What this means is that he was guilty of sin because of not going through the necessary purification rituals. In this case, he would have to offer an offering for his sin in accord with the trespass offering of chapter 5. I don't want to go back there and redo that sermon, so if you want to know what that was, go read it, okay? If he failed to offer that, and he then defiled the sanctuary or ate of the sacred things, such as tithes, then he would be subject to even greater punishment. Again, as we close out this section, we need to think on why we have been shown these things. It is the same as earlier. First, we are being shown pictures of what lay ahead in the ministry of Christ. Those have been clearly laid out. Secondly, we are again to see the failure in meeting these requirements by Israel. In 1 Samuel 14, we will read this. Now they had driven back the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ajalon. So the people were very faint and the people rushed on the spoil and took sheep, oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground and the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul saying, look, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating the blood. Likewise, in Ezekiel 33, the Lord accuses the people of eating meat with the blood as one of the offenses which brought destruction upon themselves. Although we've only gone through a minor number of the laws pertaining to the people of Israel so far in Leviticus and in the book of Exodus, there are none, none that they did not violate at some point in their history. It is the constant and continued failure of Israel Under the law of Moses, which shows us the need for God's mercy and grace, Israel rejected that offering when Christ came along, but it is still available to us and to them for any who will simply reach out and receive it. And thirdly, it is then to show us that only Christ can bring us to God, the carefully selected words of the soul of the flesh being the blood, and that the blood itself makes atonement through the soul that is in it, is speaking of the soul of the blood in the sacrifice and what it does in relation to the atonement process. As the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin, then everything that we have looked at here today is ultimately pointing to the one, final, and complete sacrifice of Christ Jesus for the sins of man. This is the entire point of this chapter being placed first after the Day of Atonement passage. It is only Christ or it is no relationship with God. There are no alternatives and there is no reliance on a law which merely condemns those who are under it. Thank God for his giving of Christ for our many transgressions. Thank God that he provided a way back for those who are willing to accept it. And thank God that we are freed from the burden of this law because of the complete and acceptable fulfillment of it by the Lord. Through him we are accepted fully and forever into the family of the redeemed. Come to Christ and enter through the door of salvation into a new and better promise. As we see quite often, and I bring it up, especially in the Bible classes on Thursday night, is people that reinsert the law of Moses and say, you have to do this or you have to do that. You have to tithe. Well, guess what? Tithing is a part of the Old Testament. It's not in the new, right? Or you have to uh, uh, observe the feasts of the Lord. Or you have to not eat pork. Well, guess what? One of the things that they can't do is eat flesh with the blood in it. And flesh with the blood in it means that the animal has to be ritually slaughtered, okay? The blood must be completely drained. And I don't know anybody that says you have to observe the feasts of the Lord and and the Sabbath day that goes out and buys kosher meat. I don't know one of them that does that. It is a poison, reintroducing the law of Moses into the fulfilled work of Christ. It is saying, yes, I know that he did everything in the law perfectly, and he gave his life up in exchange for my sins under the law, but it wasn't good enough, and I need to help him along in getting back to God. That's exactly what it is, that Christ was insufficient. That is the greatest of all heresies You are never to reintroduce the law of Moses in part or in whole into your life. And you can introduce it in whole anyway because there's no temple in Jerusalem. There are no sacrifices. There are no 10 million things that are required under the law of Moses that people can do. It is a pick and choose theology which only leads to one very sad end. When they think smugly, I'm going to be standing before the Lord and saying, look what I did. Look what I did. He's going to say, look at what my son did. And then he's going to take them and wad them up and cast them into the lake of fire because they failed to come to the grace of Jesus Christ alone. That is the entire purpose of this law is to lead us to the grace of Christ and our desperate need for something that we cannot do ourselves. Trust in Christ. Rest in Christ. And if you've never called on Jesus Christ Do it today. It's so simple. I know I've sinned. These things condemn me. I know I've done all of these things, and there's going to be a heap more. You wait until we get into the next chapter and see all of the laws that are put on Israel, and you're going to say, I've done that. Well, I've done that. I've done that. And you're going to say, where can I be freed from this body of death? Thank God from Christ Jesus, my Lord. I call on Jesus. I receive him. I ask him to cleanse me from my sins, and he will do it, and he is faithful and just to do it. And not only will he do it, he'll be Happy to do it. Happy that he went to the cross for you and you were willing to accept that offer. I can't think of anything that would make the Lord rejoice more. Our closing verse today comes from Romans chapter 10. It's verse 4. Oh, here it is. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Thank God for Jesus Christ. Woohoo! Oh. Next week is Leviticus 18, 1 through 30, Laws for Morality so as Not to Become Beguiled. It's entitled, In These, Israel Will Be Defiled. It's our 31st Leviticus sermon, and I'd like to remind you that the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if you have a lifetime of sin heaped up behind you, he can wash it away and purify you completely and wholly. So follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay, here we go. The sanctity of blood. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, these are the words he was then relaying. Speak to Aaron to his sons, and to all the children of Israel, and to them say, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded, saying, Hear the words conveyed to you this day. Whatever man of the house of Israel, who kills in the camp an ox, or lamb, or goat, or who kills it outside the camp, now you are to make careful note, and does not bring it to the door of the tabernacle of meeting according to this word, to offer to the Lord an offering before the tabernacle of the Lord, The guilt of bloodshed shall be imputed to that man, blood he has shed. And that man shall be cut off from among his people, away from the people he shall be led. To the end, that the children of Israel may bring their sacrifices in obedience to this word, which they offer in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord. At the door of the tabernacle of meeting, so heed this word to the priest and offer them as peace offerings to the Lord. And the priest shall sprinkle the blood on the altar of the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting and burn the fat for a sweet aroma to the Lord for sure. They shall no more offer their sacrifices to demons after whom the harlot they have played. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. It shall be obeyed. Also, you shall say to them, whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you, who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice as well, and does not bring it to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, as I say to you to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from among his people. This you shall do. And whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you who eats any blood, so I now say, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. It shall be this way for the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you upon the altar to this extent to make atonement for your souls for it is the blood that for the soul makes atonement. Therefore, I said to the children of Israel, no one among you shall eat blood as to you, I say, nor shall any stranger who dwells among you eat blood. Pay heed to my word this day, whatever man of the children of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you, who hunts and catches any animal or bird that may be eaten, he shall pour out its blood and cover it with dust. So he shall do for it is the life of all flesh. Its blood sustains its life. This precept is true. Therefore, I said to the children of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any flesh. This you shall not do. For the life of all flesh is its blood. Pay heed to what I say. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. So shall it be this way. And every person who eats what died naturally or what was torn by beasts as well, whether he is a native of your own country or a stranger, he shall both wash his clothes and bathe in water, as to you I tell, and be unclean until evening, then he shall be clean. But if he does not wash them or bathe his body, then he shall bear his guilt in him. Guilt shall be seen." How splendid and wonderful it is, O oh God, that we have been freed from the burden of the law. So many failed in the walk that they trod, and upon them sorrows of punishment they did draw. But through Christ there is now release and favor. In Christ we have a glorious and eternal hope. Through his work alone we can heaven's delights savor. And so on him we have set the sighting of our scope. Our eyes are fixed, our hope is set. In Christ alone is our joy and desire found. In him our assurance of heaven is met. And so to you, through him, we sing our joyous sound. Praise God, praise him all saints. Sing forth your praise from this time forth and even for eternal days. Hallelujah and amen. Oh God, thank you for the marvelous pictures of Christ in this chapter, which is so, so ignored. It's passed over just as all the book of Leviticus is. We get to things about blood and sacrifice and our hair stands up and we think, oh, that's that's old stuff. That's something that we don't have to do anymore when in fact it's as relevant and as pertinent to our lives as the dawning of each new day. In Christ, there is the sacrifice and in Christ there is the blood, the blood that was shed and that cleanses us for all eternity. Thank you. Thank you for the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. And thank you that it didn't end there. But he came out of the grave to prove that what he had done is fully sufficient and that it is true, and that we have eternal life through what he has done. Then, Lord, we're so grateful for those who have arrived back here safely from a uh, summer away and the nice climbs while we took the abuse down here in Florida. We're glad that they're here. We're thank you, we're thankful for their safety, and we pray that they have a good and safe winter. We certainly pray for Paul and Elaine and the stress they're facing, and our brother Don, who is in the um, ICU right now and is struggling up in Georgia. We pray for all the others that are facing their own trials and troubles that they will look at their life and say, This is a temporary and fading thing, but I have a higher hope in Christ Jesus. I pray for them now, and I certainly pray that they would be able to overcome whatever their trials are, but through those trials, they would stand fast and not lose faith and walk away from their faith, that they would receive many rewards in heaven for it. Lord, we commit the Lord's table to you. We thank you for the opportunity to come and proclaim Christ's death until he comes again. And so we, we uh, hand this over to you, asking that you will bless this uh, Lord's table. And we ask these things that you will be glorified. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. amen.